We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Scotia Monkovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, a monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the emergency management and creative sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. Our guest today is Jonathan Craig, a writer, policy advisor, audio producer and accessibility consultant. From 2018 to 2021, Jonathan was the editor of the quarterly magazine produced by Blind Citizens Australia, where he was credited with transforming the publication. He is a policy advisor for Vision 2020 and has worked with Arts House in Melbourne on several projects including Convergence, which was part of the Refuge Project, and the Warehouse Residency Program for Deaf and Disabled Artists. Recently, Jonathan was part of the creative team behind Exercise Torrent, the City of Melbourne's Disaster Preparedness Exercise, which is documented in our last episode of the podcast. If you haven't already listened to that, I encourage you to check it out. Even though we heard from Jonathan in that episode, I felt like there was so much more to explore with him, so we decided to have a longer discussion here, and I'm so glad we did. We touched on the Exercise Torrent program and a range of other topics, from issues around accessibility and disaster management, the power of deep listening, science fiction, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Craig. Hi, Jonathan. I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Creative Responders podcast. Uh, I'm calling you from Yagara Tourable country here in Mianjin, Brisbane. Where are you joining us from today? Um, I am in on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, uh, where the temperature has varied from something like th- in mid-30s yesterday to 19 today. So a real cool change I'm experiencing at the moment, which is quite welcome. <laughs> it seems to be such a pendulum at the moment. Yes, very much so. So a few months ago, Jonathan, you were part of the City of Melbourne's preparedness exercise exercise torrent. And in your presentation, you posed a series of questions to the group of participants that were so effective. And I thought you might it might be a good place for us to start with our discussion today. Um, the group was invited to a fictional scenario where North Melbourne had been flooded, and they were playing out the relief and recovery stage of the response. Um, we're going to listen to a little bit of the tape from the day now where you introduce those three questions that form the basis for the discussion. There is a, a mantra uh, that I want to introduce now. Three key questions that I would like to see be kind of the heartbeat, the, the underlying pulse of the exercises that we're going to do today. They are, what do I have What do I need and what can I offer? I'd love to hear from you, Jonathan, on what it is about these questions. What do I have? What do I need? What can I offer? That are useful in thinking about how we show up in an emergency scenario. I think it's about separating people a little bit from what they see in an emergency situation as their roles, 
So, and that's so when I say that, I'm talking not just about uh, the roles that they are playing in terms of what they're paid to do, but also the roles that they are playing in terms of uh, how they perceive themselves and others. So, for example, there is a perception that in an emergency situation, uh, people who are wearing uniforms are providing the help uh, and the people who are not wearing uniforms, civilians, if you like, are receiving the help and receiving the assistance and and also uh, often receiving instructions and information. And I think that seeing this communication, uh, this action as being as having a single direction perhaps limits what's possible and that's what this exercise is really all about is trying to understand that actually there are lots of different continuums via which people can communicate and that the communication can often be from the community to emergency management and it can be going back and forth in lots of different ways and so can the assistance, the care and the help. But I was also trying to encourage everybody to think of themselves and of other people as individuals rather than as groups of policemen or firemen or people with disabilities or or any other kind of cohort that you can imagine because I think that there are limitations to that way of thinking, I guess. And, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants because so much of this challenge that we try to offer, this provocation, grew out of the conversations that I had with Jen and Kate, who were co-facilitating with me and Christine. Um, You know, the four of us and and also Sarah, the producer from Arts House, we had a lot of conversations and, and, uh, you know, uh, I guess challenges to one another about what we wanted to ask people and how we wanted to ask them to think differently about this. And so... By the time we got to the moment, you know, those three questions were what it all boiled down to. How do we, how do I get people to think about themselves as differently to the roles that they play and as, as how they play into the situation individually? It's like a rehumanizing yes. strategy, it sounds like to me. It's interesting. I've just been on Kabigo Country with um, Auntie Debbie Bennett and she, uh, she talked about how in language they talk about others uh, not as a him or a her or a kind of a role, but as uh, the the translation of the word is human. Mm. That's a man-human or, you know, this idea that everyone comes with a kind of intrinsic value rather than a rather than an identified label or role or or gender. Yeah. And if you look at me, you imagine a specific kind of thing. If you look at at me as a person, as a as a uh, person who is blind, you may recognize sitting in a wheelchair, then many people will immediately see a recipient of help 
uh, as being my main role. That is the role that people imagine me playing. But one of the things about this question is once you start to consider what you have, what you need, what you can offer, and how that's once you ask those three questions of yourself, it actually becomes more complicated than you thought. And you start to see uh, different vectors because, you know, uh, you might not imagine that uh, an ambulance driver would have needs really in this situation. They're fulfilling other people's needs, but actually there are needs that that person might have uh, both in terms of being able to complete their work successfully and as an individual. But for me, you know, you might not imagine that I have things that I can offer in this situation, but in fact, there there might be things that I can offer. I really like that idea, what can I offer, because it is about action too, and often in trauma, the process of being active takes you into your manage, management strategies, really. And I'm especially interested how it relates to people with specific needs and the assumptions are made, exactly what you're saying. Or do, do you have any examples from your own life that you might be able to share how you would be responding to that question? Yeah, well, a really good example happened um, at the beginning of this year. Um, you might remember that um, there was an intro- there was a lot of uh, difficulty for people traveling between states at that time. It seems like so long ago now. But because there were so many different rules about about lockdowns in different states and and what the requirements were to cross state lines, I was traveling from Melbourne where I now live, um, to Brisbane where my family lived to see them and I was traveling there on New Year's Eve, um, you know, ironically, just before all of these changes were introduced that would make things so much easier. And in order to travel, uh, you needed to have, you needed to report a, uh, a negative rat test, but you also needed to fill out this really complicated bureaucratic form um, that they had made up pretty much just a couple of days before. And so I was sitting in the um in the, the at the gate near the flight uh, waiting to 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 take off um and i heard around me a lot of agitation from from quite a few people and they were you know walking back and forth and talking to the the gate staff and asking questions and the gate staff seemed puzzled and confused and and you know more and more uh you know um feeling like they they were not able to provide the assistance that was needed. And I had a suspicion that grew very quickly that I knew what was happening, which was that they were, these families were struggling to fill out this form and to understand because when I'd been filling out the form, uh, multiple times it told me I wasn't allowed to enter Queensland um, and I had to, uh, you know, go about it different ways. And these families... Uh, you know, they, the, I could tell that the people had accents and I could tell that English was not, was, was not their first language. And so I could see that they were struggling much more than, than even I had. And I'd found it very difficult myself and I'm quite a good speaker and writer and reader. So 
I put my hand up and I started to, you know, wave and, 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 you know, say, excuse me, excuse me. And, and uh, a lovely uh, fellow from Virgin staff was like, I'm really sorry. This gentleman needs help. I'll, you'll just have to wait, you know, just a second and came over, you know, left them and came over to me and said, Oh, so, Hey, what, you know, what can I do? Do you need a water? Do you, you know, what, what's up? You know? Uh, and I was like, well, actually, no, it's, it's not that something's up. It's that I've done this form. And I think I know how to help these people do it. And uh, nobody else there knew. Everybody was panicking and and becoming more and more uh, flapping about. Um, And so in that case, there was an assumption that, of course, I was the person who needed assistance. But I was actually able, the only person there at the time who was willing and or able to give these families, two families, the help that they were after. Mm, we become so blinker to the reality of what's in front of us, really, don't we? we make such leaps of of uh, perception. Yeah, and I kind of I do understand um, that in to some degree because there is so little understanding of you know in the general community of of what people with disabilities are capable of, mm. um, but that is. Uh, basically a missed opportunity every time somebody assumes that that somebody can't help and that's mm. not actually the case and in this case it wasn't you know i could have given up and not bothered because nobody was paying attention and because it was you know took some effort by the time i got to the point of helping and we were getting closer to boarding and you know uh it could have been I could have I could have given up and that would have then these families would have been on their own. Mm. Um so that's what I think where it becomes important to general society is let's not miss opportunities to harness people's skills. Mm. Well a big part of effective community engagement in disaster plan is ensuring this diversity of voices in the definition of what we term community, as you're speaking. Mm. When it's done well, it's not just about ticking the box, it's about genuine engagement to bring in this range of informed perspectives and different lived experience when it comes to devising systems and plans and processes, which of course are a very important part of disaster management. But in your role as a policy advisor, you spend a lot of time thinking about how these systems and plans can be better at inclusion Can you share some of the things you think are important to improving the way we develop plans so that we can build systems that work well for everyone, that people like yourself can be seen as contributors, not just receivers? Yeah, um, I think it part of it has to be attitude change. Um, And that's part of what, what I was hoping to provoke was different attitudes about people with disabilities that inform the way that the plans are built. You know, uh, everything about, um, you know, everything that I do in my policy work is hampered and impeded by the fact that uh, people have generally low expectations as to what people who are blind or have low vision are capable of. Um, And that, that... comes out in, uh, you know, disability support. It comes out in the employment sphere. It comes out in aged care. Uh, it appears everywhere and causes causes difficulty because 
based on the tyranny of low expectations, as as former disability discrimination commissioner Dr. Graham Innes put it, you know, if if you expect nothing, then you won't, you know, people will not be able to achieve what they what they're fully capable of. Mm. And it's in it's mm. interesting too also within the concept of disaster management it's based on a culture that's about call and command and there is this definition of service and receiver that's kind of intrinsically built into that. Yeah. system and you know it is changing but you know cultures change slowly don't they. Yeah. But um how do we form you know so wonderful to see you in a leadership role there to challenge those perspectives. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's been a real privilege to to be involved, and and you know, I uh, you know, I'm some in some ways I still struggle to believe that I was involved. You know, partly because uh, it's it's quite rare to see somebody like me in a position like that, and partly, of course, because you know, um, peop- other people uh, like Christine and Kate and Jen have been working in this space for much longer, but I think. You know, the thing that I bring uh, to the table, which is perhaps unique and surprising to people as well, is a little bit of an understanding of of what the different needs might be in different situations. You know, one of the examples that I used at the time was assistive technology. So when you're thinking about an evacuation centre, you're thinking about uh, a lot of people who rely on assistive technology either as a way of getting around, of moving from place to place, or as a way of receiving information, either through uh, a smartphone or through a magnifier or through a hearing aid. All of these devices have batteries. What happens when the batteries go flat? It's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge problem, and I think that it's a problem that most people you know, uh, in these situations, it, it hasn't, it isn't always fully considered because, you know, it, for, for a typical person, if a smartphone battery goes flat, it's inconvenient, but it isn't a showstopper. Mm. But for a person with a hearing loss, if their hearing aid goes flat, then they are isolated in a whole different way. And that's, you know, that's profound and upsetting and distressing. If somebody's electric wheelchair goes flat, those things are heavy and, you know, it's going to take multiple people to move that. So there needs, that's part of... implementations. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's part, that's, that's part of the provocation is, yes, you know, people with disabilities do have needs that you may not necessarily have immediately considered. And so those do need to be incorporated into your systems and plans. The process of um, playing pretend, which was really key to exercise torrent, uh, you know, could be taken flippantly, but actually it's not. And more broadly, we often talk about how arts methodologies can be really effective for imagining different scenarios. Can you talk about that in relationship to accessibility and how this process of imagining can be a useful tool when working with policymakers or planners? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, and I, I think I said this on the day as well, you know, the process of 
playing pretend is sometimes the process of rehearsing empathy, I think. Um, you know, there's there's this this idea of uh, that people who read kind of read a lot of books from a young age develop this thing called theory of mind, which allows them to step into the shoes of other people more easily. Uh, you know, and that becomes you know that becomes more mature for people who read frequently. You know, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, you know how how uh, validated this is by research, but I find the idea really interesting, and I think empathy is is such a powerful force for change, actually. And I think uh, we've seen with the introduction of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, there was a real hope from the designers of the scheme that it was going to be much more based on the needs of the individual rather than of on a set of profiles and of, uh, you know, cohort groups and things like that. Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful picture to paint. Uh, and I think in many cases that has been true, but the the gap I think that has often occurred is that, um, you know, the person who is talking to a person with disability may not fully understand uh, and be able to fully empathise with, with that person's situation and with that person's needs. I think, you know, uh, the act of listening is something that you need to practice all the time uh, and something that you need to develop in yourself. And I, I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the gaps that people might be incredibly well-intentioned when they're thinking about what supports a person with disability might need when they're accessing the NDIS. But, you know, how do you build the listening skills of a massive workforce of, 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 of planners? Well, that's such a great question because, um, you know, we don't we don't have um, these skills as part of our DNA. As you say, we have to practice them. And it's interesting um, within all these systems and disaster management, I think it's the same. You know, we don't necessarily have time to sit in deep listening as framed by Indigenous people, that idea mm. of sitting so you can build an understanding and through understanding becomes empathy. But And I think that's uh, a key issue around looking at ensuring people with lived experience are part of the thinking, the planning and the, the kind of teams of people who are connecting the mm. dots. So, yeah. And there is uh, some good increase of that uh, within the disaster management sector as yeah reference to yourself being in the room there also, but obviously needs to be more. Uh, and part of um, that is educating people the value of lived experience more broadly. So one of the biggest arguments in disaster management at the moment is that the planning more broadly doesn't have the voice of those being impacted within its process to be able to be really responsive. Yeah, it's about getting the right people of, at the table, and that includes, you know, people with different different uh, perspectives on life. It also includes people from the community uh, who, you know, you you're serving basically. You know, it includes, you know, I loved that we have the lost dogs home uh, there on the day. I loved that we had local restaurant owners. You know, we need voices like this, and this is what. Uh, this was such a good occasion for was, 
uh, you know, creating a template for for what could be possible and who you would go and ask about. Uh, what should we do? What should be the next steps? How do we get information out efficiently? Uh, all of those key questions, you know, we're starting to give people more radical ideas of who should be answering those questions. I think that's something uh, that is the real contributor from the perspective of creative engagement, that you can have and hold a space that enables people to come in with an equal kind of value and also to start to think beyond the normal structures to be able to see and connect in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you are... Per, you personally have a keen interest in sci-fi and futurism, which is kind of that future thinking process, isn't it? Can, can you talk about what the representation of disabilities is like within that world of sci-fi, art and fiction? Are you seeing changes in that representation over recent years? Yeah, I am. And it's really interesting, you know, ever since I was a very small child, I felt, you know, drawn to... I guess, other worlds. And and really, as a person who's blind, a lot of that was about the cool sound effects, you know. It sounded <laughs> it sounded like nothing else. And that was what always always got me hooked, you know. Uh the the movies that, that I heard mum and dad watching, you know, were sort of sunk into background noise if they were just, you know, about people walking around doing normal things. But as soon as there was a laser gun, you know, that, that uh, you know, attracted my small mind and I was interested in a different way. Um, you know, but it's, it's interesting because uh, people think about science fiction as escapist, really, don't they? And that comes from the idea of of something like Star Trek, which kind of, uh, you know, shows us this utopian future in which, you know, everybody is at peace and and all people, you know, uh, crew the starship together, you know, and um, problems are solved at the end of a 60-minute episode and you move on to the next planet, you know. Uh, and that gives gives the impression i guess for a lot of people that that science fiction uh kind of is is quite uh you know it's it's not really it's like the hamburger of of literature you know books are the same you know they're not but don't really you, but don't you think that these forms are influencing perspectives of thinking and i think it's kind of interesting at the moment most of the science fiction movies that are coming out are hugely apocalyptic there's not much sense of the capacity to see that the future is something different than the than disaster do you, you know we we do you know, what is the role, I suppose, in thinking about that creative lens of being uh, futuristic in a hopeful sense that, you know, what if we got it right, as uh, some of the philosophers say, you know, what if we got it right and things actually were able to shift before the massive apocalypse? Well, I think... Uh, you know, the, it's actually interesting. A lot of the the sci-fi that seeks to clearly extrapolate from uh, today into the future, that seeks to clearly explain how we got from here to there, uh, in the past that has been quite, as you say, pessimistic. The extrapolation is usually uh, comes in the form of a warning, uh, I guess, Um and the warning is, if we continue down this path, then 
only, you know, terrible things will happen to us. And actually I think the popularity of apocalyptic science fiction is that there's a kind of catharsis in in everything blowing up. Actually, I think we kind of love that because I think we're not... Con- well, we have a fascination yeah. about horror, really, don't we, in we, we do, and I think we're not convinced. I think we're, there's, it, it, the fact that apocalyptic science fiction is so popular actually reflects um, that we are all quite unconvinced by the world that we live in and we kind of have a sense that somehow it's all going to fall down and in some weird way there's kind of a joy or or some kind of some kind of feeling of satisfaction that we get when we watch you know the the earth you know cleared and the cities all blow up and and things like that you know uh in my role as an accessibility consultant um, I worked on uh, in in one of the last projects for Refuge, which was a game uh, called Convergence, and it was a, a kind of an online uh, kind of and tabletop role playing game about um, you know uh, apocalypse and and city building. And what was really interesting to me was that you know part of the game was. Uh, about the fact that you know, a, you know, it, it extrapolated further and further into the future, and and um, you know, it, it described fire and flood and and all of the kinds of natural disasters which you know are happening right now, actually in the present, and are going to continue to happen. And it painted a bleak picture. But then the interesting thing that it did was once it cleared the board, it asked you to start from the beginning based on the wisdom that we've gathered from First Nations people and build a new city that was different to what we'd seen before. And so I think that's one of the cathartic elements of of Apocalypse is the idea of, of let's build something new. Uh, let's Push to the edge and then come back. Yeah, push to the edge and then come back. But one of the things that's, you know, in in reference to an earlier question, you know, one of the things that has frustrated me about about science fiction is that people with disability have largely been absent from it, as they have been from the world uh, generally, as they have been from government, as they have been from workplaces, you know, as they have been in every field of life, um, you know, and... I've I've found that very frustrating because it's based, I think, on a guess that disability will will disappear over time to a process of, I guess, you know, quiet eugenics, I suppose. And I don't really think my guess is not that that will happen. I don't really think that that will happen. I think that disability will continue to exist into the future and that as many disabilities as disappear, new ones will show up. Um, and so what's really interesting to me is when science fiction uh, actually tries to embrace and investigate what the future of disability will look like. And a couple of good examples are two anthologies published by a small Australian publisher called Twelfth Planet Press called Defying Doomsday and Rebuilding Tomorrow. And they are about uh, what the experience of people with disability is going to be in and after an apocalypse. Um, 
And I think it's really interesting because the stories really don't uh, rely on people with disability being helpless. They show how much they can offer, even in situations where supposedly we're going to resort to Darwinism and we're going to all, it's going to be kill or be killed and we're all going to be, you know, we're, uh, only the murderers will will uh, will survive, you know. I, um, I'm not really... I'm not really sure about that. Uh, mm. I think most of the time humans have understood that uh, expedience requires teamwork, you know, to survive. Well, collaboration is the core the core skill that we're being told over and over again that we need to kind of develop, and that's collaboration isn't about who or what. It's about all contributing what they can at the time of need or in the uh, thinking process. So... Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. And and yeah. so I I think that's not going to I think that um most of the time when things when we've seen historical successes of any kind whether it be you know uh technological developments or constructions or so on uh it's it's usually been through a process of collaboration. And so I'm really interested to see um you know science fiction starting to investigate the idea of of that a little bit more and starting to include the voices of people with disability and you know well again it's the kind of art forms of writing and theater and film that can give a a uh, frame to show the other like that we can um, look at things through a different process by showing them educating through experience yeah i think that's true you know um the one of the biggest barriers, I think, to my employability has been the idea that many people hold that I am kind of an alien or, or sort of like a monk that sits in a cave and wears a robe and reads Braille and is, is in some way, you know, just very different from from anybody else. And so it's actually, I think, when I've gone to a job interview, it's it's somebody's nervousness about how they're going to talk to me and what we're going to have in common that mm-hmm. is just a, as big a problem as the question of what, uh, you know, how much is it going to cost to adapt the workplace to fit, to meet my needs. Spoiler alert, the answer is nothing, by the way. It won't cost <laughs> them anything. Well, you know, that, but- that goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, the kind of humanising process and people can only get to understand where your point of sharing is if the time is spent with each other to find those. That's the kind of deep listening process that yeah. has been shared with us going again to our cultural wisdom as First Nations people. It takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think... Mm. Um, with you know that process of 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 listening is going to be really important for people to to do actively rather than mm. passively. I think people mm. are going to have to make the choice, and I think many people are. I think it's really interesting to to see people with disability being platformed more than they ever have been before, and that makes me feel positive. Although I think it's important that that platforming be more than a token gesture. Along with all the beautiful creative things that you do, Jonathan, in your own work, you also work um, as a policy advisor for Vision 2020, which is one of those platforms. They're a peak body for blindness and low vision. Yeah. And you've just been in Canberra over this past week at Parliament House as part of your role with them. 
And I heard that the event made some creative adaptations to the way accessibility was approached for the guests in attendance. Can you talk a bit about that approach and how it was received? Well, you know, it was actually kind of interesting. It it was kind of some of the elements of it were a little bit inspired by the kind of, uh, I guess, uh, provocations from from exercise tone. Um, and again, this was we developed this through a collaborative process with with the blindness and low vision sector and with our community. But it's really interesting. What we decided to do was to exemplify what an inclusive dinner event could look like. And so, you know, uh, we had we had Maggie Beer. Um, create the menu, which was really cool. And I was, it was very, very exciting to meet Maggie. Um, (laughs) And, you know, she was thinking about, you know, uh, what the, the bowls and plates would look like and, you know, how things should be plated up to, to make them easier to eat, Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, avoiding, you know, terrible things like fish with bones in wrapped in foil, which is kind of difficult uh, for anybody, but, you know, even more undignified for somebody with vision loss when it's, when it's uh, foisted upon them. Um, you know, and, but then we were the, you know, we wanted to include accessibility in every aspect of the evening. So we had things like, um, dots on the salt to distinguish it from the pepper, rubber bands on the bottles of red wine to distinguish them from the white so that people could choose what they wanted to drink, liquid level indicators on the table so that people could refill their glass and it would, um, beep or vibrate to tell you when your glass was full. Um, oh well, that's an interesting one. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. It's and and these are very simple, you know, yeah. uh, easy, cheap pieces of technology. And uh, we also had a um, a, a software um, uh, installed which uses low energy Bluetooth beacons uh, to uh, communicate with your smartphone and triangulate your location in the room, which meant that you could move your you could move independently from table to table if you wanted to find somebody and always know uh you know it would give you verbal instructions on on which way you needed to go to get to say table eight and we also had a roll call at the beginning of the night where um the we located the tables in the room by saying the table this table is in in x location and each person would Uh, say their name and their organization. So if you wanted to talk to somebody at a specific table, you would know essentially what table they were at and where they were. So you could get to them without... It's interesting when you um, see and hear these kind of things that we call about access adaptation. Actually, at the end of the day, they're so useful for everyone, aren't they? So I, who who, who doesn't have vision impairment, who who wanted to... uh, lobby such and such in the room and didn't know what they looked like, I would know then where they were and I could target them myself as well. Yeah, so. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. These, some of these, um, these uh, adaptations have secondary audiences mm. um, and make things easier for everyone actually. But one of the big things about these adaptations is that they're all, you know, they all are very easy to institute. Mm. They're all kind of, kind of simple and they take away the mystery about how we live and how we do things and and make it put it right in front of you that actually you know with the implementation of the right technology we can 
uh, go out to dinner and we can read the Braille menu and we can have exactly the same experiences that you would have. Mm, and be self-determined that, in your own engagement. Yeah, exactly, that we can do things independently. And these these are not expensive changes to implement. These are not, you know, uh, incredibly difficult. And so that was, you know, one of the things, the messages that we wanted to send, that, that mm. actually accessibility and inclusion are easier than they look. They're not complex. I really like that term um, to demystify. Yeah. And I, I go back to the three questions you asked at uh, Exercise Torrent. What do I have? What do I need and what can I offer? They're so uh, immediate and direct, actually, that, that demystifying the fact that we all have an equal level in the, the process of um, trying to ensure that we are safe communities. Yeah. And there's a lot more work to do, I think. You know, uh, events like Torrent, um, events like the Parliament House, uh, you know, a dinner that we had, they are, are good steps in the right direction of uh, making sure that our voices are included in changing the way people think about what we're capable of. And I think that we need to keep doing things like this. And I think that creativity and artists have such a vital role to play in that, actually. Well, it's about um, the creative invitation that enables people to come without defensiveness or preconceived notions of their their position and their power in that room. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, going back to uh, kind of uh, science fiction, you know, one of my favourite authors, um, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, you know, has has shown some some scepticism early in her career about the idea of of science fiction writers and and artists in general and creatives uh, being prophets of the future. You know, in her brilliant, brilliant mm. introduction to the Left Hand of Darkness, she suggested that that perhaps uh, science fiction writing is really uh, mostly about the here and now. And I think that that's. Yes, of course, that is often true. But it's interesting how later in her career she actually changed her perspective a little bit and and made it a little bit more nuanced. And I really love this quote. I won't look it up, but I will paraphrase it from later in her life uh, where she said uh, something to the effect of, you know, uh, hard times are coming and we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can imagine some grounds for hope. We'll need writers who can remember freedom, realists of a larger reality. And I think that's such an interesting provocation and challenge about what the role of art can be in helping us think differently about responding to, you know, what can look like a bit of a dark future. Mm. You know, yeah, I such really a beautiful container of promise, isn't it? It is a, a container of promise because I really would like us to see to think more optimistically when we extrapolate about the future and to challenge ourselves to think what would it be like if what would it take for us to avoid having to blow everything up? 
Because I think that's easy. I think it's easy to become a nihilist and say, you know, everything. It's we, too hard and I'll just go hard. down dying. Yeah. Go yeah. down fighting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, let's just enjoy the, the all of the bangs and explosions and, and things like that. But I think... I think it's it's that's almost like an that is kind of an escapism. Even the dark apocalypses are kind of uh, are kind of escapist in a way. And mm-hmm. I think to really uh, avoid that kind of escapism, uh, paradoxically, is to think what would it take to get us from the the point that we're at now where the the highway separating two halves of Hawaii is is possibly about to be blocked by a lava flow and at the day on the day that that we're recording this podcast you know uh there's they're cutting power to parts of South Australia because they're not sure when the Murray River is going to peak you know Things, if you read the newspaper like I, well, or read them, you know, go online or or whatever you do, watch the Today Show, you know, it, it it's, you know, it's stressy. It, it mm. makes you worried and and concerned and and it's tempting to feel powerless, actually. It's mm. honestly tempting to feel powerless because if you feel powerless, then you don't have to do anything. Uh, and you just wait for the cards to fall how they may. But if you, if you, you know, resist that temptation to surrender to the inevitable doomsday and decide that it's not inevitable, then that is a provocation to think, how can I make that true? And it just takes little actions, doesn't it? And again, I go back to those three questions that you offered us. What do I have? What do I need? And what can I offer? What can I offer being such a productive um, process to look forward to? Yeah, yeah. I think that those those three questions, you know, are the three challenges that we each as an individual and collectively as a society need to think about when we think about what could it look like to create a more positive, inclusive, safe future than the one that's sitting in front of us right now. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's so great to speak with you today. I look forward to following your work and hearing more about your future projects and your responses to those three questions. Where can our listeners uh, find you online if they'd like to know more about your work? Probably the best place to find out about what I'm doing next is via my Twitter, which you can find at J underscore D underscore X. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Jonathan. So great to meet with you and uh, we look forward to working with you in your future and, you know, really important contribution that you're making in this disaster management space specifically. So we thank you for that. Take care. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much all of you who are listening. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation and a special thanks to Jonathan for joining me today. We will include links in our show notes to the books Jonathan mentioned as well as some other relevant resources. And if you haven't already listened to our documentary episode about Exercise Torrent, I encourage you to check that out. It's just one episode back in your Creative Responders feed. 
If you'd like to access transcripts and research links related to the podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au where you can find all our past episodes. If you're enjoying Creative Responders, we'd love you to rate and review us on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps us if you leave a review and let us know what you're enjoying about the show. Creative Responders podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. We'll be taking a short break over the summer, but we'll be back with new episodes in February. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.